HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and uh, I not only do I host In the Drink, but I'm also the beverage director of a couple of restaurants down in New York. We have Delanima, Lartuzzi, Lapicho, and a little wine bar called Amphora. I do want to give our, our Midnight Magnums program at Amphora a shout-out. We're open until 2 a.m., from Monday through Saturday and one on Sunday. And any, at any time after midnight, we have a great list of magnums that we just cut the price in half. A uh, great way to, uh, to share a delicious bottle of wine with some friends. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in live, I am uh, sorry about the delayed start, um, but here we are. Thank you so much for being uh, dedicated live listeners. Uh, it is a crummy day here in uh, in Brooklyn. It is uh, gross outside, but what uh, the view that I can see out of the uh, the the Heritage Radio shipping container that we're sitting in is this actually really awesome. I, I've never mentioned this before, but I really admire what they do. They actually bring in a fireplace for like a couple months out of the year. It's like a temporary fireplace. When it is cold and gross outside, there is a wood-burning fireplace right in front of the studio. When it's nice, they just remove it and put a table, which is absolutely nuts. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, I'm excited to welcome back one of uh, the only return guests we've ever had here, Uh, someone I I consider a good friend and someone I look up to in the industry, a guy who brings a lot of fun and uh, high-quality wine to people, um, both uh, as the uh, the guy behind the wine lists at uh, Pearl and Ash and Rebel. Um, he has his own selection of wines that he imports, and he's the chef sommelier at La Paulet. We have Patrick Capiello in the studio. Welcome back. 
Thanks for having me back, Joe. It's, it's good to be here, <laughs> even though it's such a crummy day. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you made it. You made it. I mean, I'm, f- I'm fondly thinking ahead to uh, to the bright, sunny weather in San Francisco in just a couple of weeks. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah. So tell us what like what what are you looking forward to, and how did you first get involved in in La Palais? Um Well, the La Palais, uh event was had just started right before I moved to New York in uh, 2000 was the first year that the, that the event uh, occurred. And it was at Montrachet where Daniel Jonas was the wine director. Um, and I started in 2001 at Tribeca grill. So, um, David Gordon would help, would help Daniel with the Palais and, and kind of just by osmosis, I, I started to be involved in it as well. Um, and uh, my role for, for many years was, Kind of just like everybody else's in the in the psalm realm, you know, you just kind of go and, and work the gala dinner or the grand tasting on and off with that because my time at Veritas, um, Tim Kopeck would go and, and work that role, so I would have to work at the restaurant. Um, but on and off, that was kind of just the, the normal procedure. And then David Gordon, who was really kind of just heading the sommelier team, um, I guess it was probably it's got to be six years ago now because we were in San Francisco when he when he talked to Dan- Daniel about the fact that he was ready to kind of <laughs> go into semi-retirement. Initially, it was going to be full, full-blown retirement, but now it's become semi-retirement. So David Gordon used to lead the SOM team and just decided he was ready to, to kind of not have to take on that responsibility because the poly was getting bigger and bigger each year, so there's more and more roles. So I don't think it was as much about him. In, in retrospect, it wasn't about it, it, him being not, not interested in doing it anymore. I think that the job had just gotten so overwhelming, and really it needs to be a few people that, that do mm-hmm. the job. But at this point, really there's three of us outside of Daniel that do the job. job. D- David still is on hand assisting me. And then Risto Zizovsky from Ultimaria Group is the other other guy who, who helps, uh, who's one of my very good friends. And, and so the three of us really are leading the SOM team now because, like I said, the events have spread from what originally was just a dinner into now several dinners, several tastings. So it's a week's worth of events, really. So it's pretty amazing. Oh, so how many Somalis were there in the beginning? How many are they are there now? It probably was like 15 Psalms that were working those events. I, th- I think I've seen pictures of like the first Palais when like Raj Parr was there and Tim Kopeck and Bernie Sun. And, you know, it was just it was only a handful of people. There's only a handful of Somalis back in 2000. Now, you know, you can throw a rock in New York City and you're going to hit a Somali. They're, <laughs> they're everywhere. Um, now I, I manage over 100 um, wow. between all the events. So, yeah, which is... From which, like, how, how far do they all go? All over the world. Yeah. We, have, we have people now from from Italy, from um, Sweden, from Denmark, from Japan. Um, yeah, some of these are, and it's amazing because, you know, the, the, for the, to participate in the event, really, people are kind of flying on their own dime. So it's not like we're flying, you know, we don't have the ability or the money to, to fly in some of these from all over the world, but these are just people that are so passionate about wine and Burgundy and so excited about the event that they're willing to pay for their own airfare, pay for their own accommodations and fly wherever we're having the event in order just to be a part of it. So it's like a huge, it's a huge honor for us. I mean, uh, this is my fifth or sixth La Palais and, uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, uh, that you guys don't realize that it's a big mistake to invite me <laughs> one of these years and that there's other people who know Burgundy way better than I do. Um, but I certainly love Burgundy wines so much and it's just been as a, as a participating sommelier, just a, an incredible way to, taste wines that I that I can't afford and that we could rarely even sell at our restaurants to network with other great sommeliers to network with winemakers and to also network with with guests who are who are real wine enthusiasts totally well i mean i think you know the the the, the 
the way we look at it with the people that you know um, we we're excited to work with on these events, we want people who are passionate about wine. It doesn't isn't just about Burgundy. You don't have to be a Burgundy specialist to work to work the event. We want people who are passionate about wine, who are hardworking, and who are you know interested in providing great service. Because Paul, you know, when you have this many sommeliers, you would expect, obviously, great service. That would, that would be the ideal situation. Is it kind of like herding cats, though, with 100 sommeliers? It, it often is, yeah. Herding several drunk cats by the end of the, <laughs> by the, end of the week. You know, people, people, they, they, people start off strong, but usually they start to fade with their ability to, you know, handle all the... It's a lot of wine. I mean, it's a lot of wine, and it's, it's it, it, during the course of the, of the grand tasting, or the, the Gala dinner, you know... There's such amazing wine that these collectors, you know, save all year or years to open at this event. And then they want to share them. They want to share them with the sommeliers. They want to share them with the winemakers. They want to share them with the other guests. So inevitably, you wind up getting a glass in your hand. You know, it's like every every couple minutes, like somebody's throwing another glass in your hand. And to have the, you know, ability to remember not to necessarily swallow all of it. To You don't want to spit out something like amazing, like, you know, DRC from the 60s. Like, that's something you kind of want to taste. Um so to have the you know self control, I think to realize not to get too drunk, but it's part of the fun. It's you know that we have uh, the public events. I want to talk about that uh, in a little bit, but the, there's some things that people don't see that guests don't see that are, are specifically for the the smallies, and that's something that I always look forward to. Uh, there's a uh, smallie seminar and then a, a welcome dinner. This year, you guys have Jeremy Sates from from Domain Dujac. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I cannot be more excited about it's, that. It's, you know, if you look at the people who have done, done those seminars for the sommeliers, and it's super gracious because they bring wines from their cellars for the sommeliers. They take the time to, to sit in a room with us for an hour or two and talk about the wines and answer all the questions that we have. It's a huge educational opportunity. You know, it's like, being able, it's like having the opportunity to go visit them in their cellar but not having to do it. It's, it's here, here in New York or in San Francisco. But in 2002, I think it was, it was um, the, the sommelier seminar was Aubert de Villain from DRC and Anne-Claude Leflev from Domaine Leflev. It's like, that was my first introduction to the Sommelier Seminars. And I mean, you know, that's a pretty high point. And there have been, I mean, Christophe Rumier, uh, you know, has done has done one or several. Dominique Lafon, um, you know, the Munier Jaborg sisters, um, uh, Charles Van Kenneck from, from Udola Nolad. I mean, it, the list of Sommeliers that have, or, or winemakers that have done the Sommelier Seminar, it's great. And it's so exciting to have Jeremy doing it. I mean, he's, such an amazing, you know, um, passionate individual and, and so dynamic in his personality. And it, I think that people, people are going to, the sommeliers are really going to learn a lot from it. It's so. one of the few, like one of the plays that, ways that we can really just like learn with, with these wines that are, that are pretty pricey. Those are so expensive. hundred percent. Yeah. It, it's super exciting. And often you see older bottles being opened at that event, which is really exciting. Hopefully Jeremy's bringing some older bottles of Claude Roche. I don't know if he's listening right now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, no, it's, 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 it's a, that's kind of like our way to try and say thank you, you know, for all the hard work. And I think it's a pretty cool way to do it. Um, I'm not sure if you know the the answer to this off the top of your head, but are are there tickets left for, for, there there are, there are for, I believe the grand tasting and also for the, um, the Gala dinner, which is the big, you know, the, the big crescendo event that happens on Saturday night. It's the big BYO, you know, Daniel Balut is cooking. Michael Mina is cooking. It's a you know all, all-star chef lineup. Um, Fifty of the, the country's best sommeliers serving wines. Well, the winemakers are there, and they bring wines from their cellars to serve the guests as well. So it's really an amazing like opportunity. It's it's the inspiration for the event. Um, La Palais de Merceau is an event that has occurred for. I was just there this year. I think it was the ninety first or ninety second um, Palais de Merceau. And this event that Daniel went to when he was young and traveling in Burgundy and first starting out in the import um, game. 
and uh, it really affected him. And he he wanted to transport that experience to the U.S. So this this was the idea behind this dinner. And at that dinner in Merceau, it's the same thing. You bring wines, and the winemakers bring wines, and it's a, a it's an amazing experience. I've been twice now. Like I'll, you'll be sitting in your chair, and you know Jean Francois Coach, uh, you know Coach Dury comes over like with a, with a with a magnum of Corton Charlemagne, you know from the '90s, and he's like pouring you a glass, and you know. Uh, um, uh, it's it's like it's it, one after another. Dominique Lafon with with old Bob, you know it's in Merceau, so it's all these Merceau producers. But Daniel took that experience and made it for all of Burgundy. So this this Palais is about the whole the whole the whole region, and you know we've expanded it. I think it, it, when for oh, for a while I think that the events tended to be focused more on um, these super rare dinners. And, and you know if you look at these dinners that we do, like this time we're doing a dinner with. Uh, Mounier and Rouleau. Um, we're doing a dinner with uh, Dujac and Lafon. Really great Burgundy producers. And these producers are reaching into their cellars, but they don't have a lot of these old wines. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're almost priceless in some ways. So these, these events tend to be events that are on the little, little bit pricier, pricier side, or they have, they have over the course of time. But because those, those bottles are so rare and so unique, and we're doing them at you know, super fine dining restaurants, I think that we wanted to try and add some, some more affordable things into the, into the package for the Poway. And that was when we started what has now become the off-the-grid tasting. So a really, uh, the idea here is, you know, Daniel has, and has expressed a, a desire to really connect with the next generation of wine drinkers. And as Burgundy has become rare and maybe in some people's eyes expensive, um, the, the ability for people who are young and interested in wine maybe hasn't been there to access these wines. So this this off-the-grid tasting, which we're also doing in, in San Francisco, uh, which started out, I think, five or six years ago we started it. Um, it's basically under 100 bucks, and it's an opportunity to do a walk-around tasting with some of the great wines that you would find outside of the center of, of Burgundy. So outside of the Cote d'Or, you see, uh, that we have a lot of wines from the Maconay and from uh, Beaujolais and from Chablis. And there's really what we consider the great values of, of Burgundy. And it's all curated by young sommeliers who are passionate about these areas and they curate the wines themselves. And they're there to talk to you about the wines yeah. and, and give you a little education. Yeah, I did that uh, last year as a sommelier pouring in. I had the uh, Cote Chalonnais. Right. Uh, and you see like great winemakers who have kind of more prestigious vineyards um, also kind of working in these kind of lesser respected, lesser known, but bringing similar passion. Aubert de Villain has, has vines in the Cote sure. Chalonnais, Lafon in uh, Maconnet. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's really exciting and a really fun time. Yeah. It's a cool, it's a cool uh, thing. And we're really excited to have that as part of it. We're actually talking about when we're back in New York, maybe adding another event that, that hits mm-hmm. that price point. Because we really do want to connect with the next generation. We don't want people to look at Burgundy as being something that's exotic and uh, expensive and out of reach. We really want this event to connect with every generation and, you know, think that that's that's uh, always the key you know finding 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 the ability to connect with many generations and not making this event be about about one particular you know age group yeah and i feel like beaujolais is like the like that's like the gateway drug right yeah. For, so every sommelier loves beaujolais and i think that it's it because we love to drink it and it's value it's a good value i think guests really like it too it's just fun and approachable totally i think that the 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 what's happened in beaujolais is pretty pretty uh, um, amazing like if you think about what those wines cost and, and what the interest level was and even the accessibility you know you could find something like Foyard or Lapierre like on the shelf and any in in whatever wine store you know like it was something that wasn't difficult to get it wasn't allocated for a wine buyer and now that's the case like these wines that we were really excited about in 
10 years ago we would just drink in, in normal fat, normal capacity, have now become rare items as well. So, And then there's so much other stuff happening in Beaujolais. Lafarge is down there mm-hmm. now making wine. So it's cool to see that that area has really blown up and taken off. It's great wines. I want to give a plug to the Grand Tasting, too, because I think it's just an amazing event. You have how many winemakers are going to be there? It's 31 winemakers. 31 winemakers. I think they're each going to bring like three wines from the same vintage it's, or so? Yeah. It's, well, no, it's, yeah, that, like for the Grand Tasting, it's, yeah. it's three to four different wines from all, all from the, all from the same uh, same producer at each table. So every every table you walk up to, you get to try four different wines for, with Jeremy Sess from Dujac, and he's there pouring the wines for you with with a sommelier connected to to that table. So as you're well. like 120 or so wines with the 31 winemakers and 31 yeah. sommeliers. I mean, that's a an, it's, it's an amazing event. The, the level of coordination. I know that Daniel has like a, a whole team, but uh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean it's you know like I think Levy Dalton once said it's it's like going on a it's like going on a um uh individual seller tours with each one of these winemakers in in that room like it's an opportunity to visit Burgundy but not to have to fly there and I think that was kind of a cool you know uh, kind of explanation of how it works because that's really what it is and you have you know the winemakers are, are willing to willing to talk to you it's it's it can be a little crazy but there is interaction between between the winemakers you can ask whatever questions and they're totally going to answer you know that's why the sommeliers are there so that yeah. they can deal with pouring the wines but I know this is crazy but invariably every year like I'll get some guests who are like I bought tickets to both sessions because there's usually like an early session and a late one. Mm-hmm. Like I just don't want to leave. Like I bought tickets to both sessions, which is crazy, <laughs> but it's, it's awesome. Yeah. By the end, people are like purple teeth stained and like a little bit hazy. I'm always like, go get a coffee, you know, go maybe, maybe go take a nap before you come back for the, for the, the gala dinner. Cause you know, that gala dinner can be also pretty rowdy. So yeah. And I mean, and the day. gala dinner for me, it just like embodies this idea of sharing wine, right? You hear it all the time that wine is meant to be shared. Mm-hmm. And the saddest scene in any like movie is when like in Sideways, he just drinks that great wine by himself. Like it's just right. a miserable. <laughs> you can't say, hey, how amazing is this? There at the, at the gala dinner, everyone brings a bottle and everyone's sharing it. Mm-hmm. And your experience, you have this great experience with all these people at your table. Yeah. And the winemaker. I mean, how often do you get to sit at a table with a great winemaker who's brought, you know, multiple wines from their cellar? It's it's amazing. Yeah, it really it really is amazing. I mean, to, you know, I, I remember the first time that a regular guest of mine went to the Palais and wound up sitting next to um, Armand Rousseau. And he was like, this is like the most unbelievable experience of my life. This is Rousseau. This guy's like, I, you know, I, I like his wines are an important part of my life and he's hanging out with them all day you know it's pretty pretty amazing experience do you have a uh, a favorite memory from previous palais um for for me for me personally you know i remember the first time one of the one of the early times that i was working i guess it wasn't that long ago um but i uh david gordon before i was doing the assignments david gordon assigned me to christophe rumier's table and you know it's always the busiest table and you know when you when you get assigned to that table you're like oh yes i'm working with rumier that's uh, that's such an honor but it winds up being like a nightmare because everybody wants to drink the wine so i'm just like you know pouring the wines like crazy like crazy and and um david walks up and asks Christophe if everything is okay he's like yes yeah, so you kidding me patrick's amazing it's like he's got six arms because <laughs> <laughs> so you know because basically he was just talking to everybody the whole time so i had yeah. to keep pouring the wines to keep the line moving so that was a that was a pretty cool cool experience for me but i mean there's so many you know being able to like spend time with these winemakers and in, in you know late even like late night after the after the events are all over is super fun but i think you know it's a it's a special it's a special event and a, and, and a special week and you know there's there's so many great things about it. And how do you feel about all these kind of 
other events that have, that have come out that are modeled on the Pauli, like the Festa di Barolo and the Riesling Fire and, and all of these. Yeah, things. I mean, I think I think that's I think that's that's a great. It's got to be. It's an honor, I'm sure, for for Daniel and I think for the people who organize the event to to see that people look at what we do and and, and want to emulate it and want to create that experience for other wines. I mean, there's so many more wines than just Burgundy. So yeah, if this event works and if this event is exciting for clients to enjoy the wines from this region. Why not let it expand to others like Riesling Fire and, and you know the the Barola one and there's there's so many that, that are happening now, so I think it's flattering you know I think that um, that people are people are taking this model and moving it into other areas. Yeah, yeah I think it's exciting too. Yeah. All right, uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back more with Patrick Caffiello. All right. Hello, 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 hello. Stars align to make you mine. Don't move too fast. Let it seep the flavor deepens every week. And I have never. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. All right, we're back with Patrick Caffiello, the chef sommelier of uh, La Palais, um, uh, along with a whole great team over there. Also, the uh, the managing partner, wine guy at Pearl and Ash and Rebel. Uh, and actually, I should say, the newly Michelin-starred Rebel. So congratulations on that. Thanks, yeah. Exciting. Is that something you guys were even hoping for? Or, or, of course or we were hoping for. <laughs> thinking, it was something you were thinking about? and You know, I think... Um you know the timing when it comes to, I think if you've worked in a Michelin star restaurant and you're kind of, you have that uh, understanding. I worked at Gilt, which was a Michelin star restaurant and it had been one of the first Michelin star restaurants it, when, when New York uh, Michelin came out. So those guys in that restaurant, before I even started there, were really aware of how the, how it worked, kind of like the ins and outs of the Michelin. And obviously you never know who the Michelin inspectors are, but they're like, it's funny. My, my, my girlfriend is a chef and we were watching this movie called Burnt, which I don't think was a very great movie, but it's, it's about, about this idea of a Michelin star. And they talk about the, the tells for Michelin in, inspectors. I, they, they were ones on this thing that I didn't um, necessarily agree with, but it's, we knew the timing. And, that, and that's the thing that matters. Most Michelin inspectors come over the summer. That tends to be the, the, their, their, their key time. And then they make their decision by, you know, the time uh, October when, when the guide comes out. So when we opened the restaurant, our desire was to definitely get a Michelin star. We, we, we wanted to try and look at the model that had been started by some of these more casual places that had got into the Michelin um, guide in some way, like Lestrance was really the one that started it in Paris with a more kind of, you know, you don't have to wear a suit and tie to go in there. The services is super stuffy. So we looked at that as kind of an inspiration and, you know, um, we were hoping that that would happen. And then we slowly but surely started to feel like it might be happening. You know, there was some contact with Michelin. They wanted some photos from us. And once that kind of happened, we were like, oh, shit, this might actually be happening. So I was away. I was actually in Bordeaux when it, when it, when it occurred, which was kind of a bummer. I wasn't able to, to celebrate with those guys. But 
I mean, we're so happy. We're so happy for Daniel. I mean, Daniel Whitey was, he was the, my, the chef and, and my partner there. Worked, he worked at Spring in Paris for many years. So really had a great mentor in Daniel Rose uh, and learning how to make, you know, really great French food, but with a more kind of um, not modern approach, but I would say um, a more simplistic approach. But really, you know, it's, it's, it's an exciting time for us and i think it's it's an exciting affirmation that we're doing that we're doing things right yeah i think i mean you guys are doing just such a fantastic job i've been a a bunch of times now the food is delicious i mean your wine list is insane like i can't even (laughs) picture you must have like uh you must be storing it in the sewers like this whole (laughs) underground i don't even know i mean you have that much room there it's amazing i mean what you know this this restaurant we learned from pearl and ash you know i mean i think when I, the last time I was on it, it was great after Pearl and Ash had opened. And we, I think we spoke about the growing the cellar there. That wet wine list is over 3,000 selections now at Pearl and Ash. And, you know, when I, when we opened that place, we were working out of Eurocovs. Now I basically took over the entire, like, what was the dry storage and turned it into a wine cellar. I'm, I think because of my time at Veritas, um, where we had a huge wine list and a really small wine cellar, I, I learned the process of how you really optimize on space mm-hmm. with the racking, with the with the with, you know with the, the inventory systems that we use, all, all that that stuff, and it's all stuff that I've taught my staff, um, and they're able to execute it extraordinarily well. So in Revell, we have a two thousand bottle selection, a little over now, um, and between those two you know restaurants. At Rebel, definitely, I, I, I went in as soon as we started looking at the blueprints, and I figured out where I was going to have my wine room right away. So there was an old walk-in that used to be the, you know, the, this restaurant used to be uh, the R Bar, which is the, just like a shitty dive bar. And they used to have uh, a ton of beer on tap, but it was like Bud Light and Heineken, and, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty crappy bar. Um, totally my kind of place. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so they, the keg room where they kept all the kegs, I rolled in. I was like, oh, this is perfect. I want this for the white wine room. So I converted what was the keg room, a huge, huge walk-in cooler in the basement into the white wine cellar. And it's rare. Usually most cellars in New York, if they do have a cellar, you have a cellar that you keep your red and white wine at like 55 degrees. And then you're working out of refrigerators for the white wines, like one bottle at a time. Usually that's how it is. But I'm like, and I've worked that way my entire life. At Veritas, we, we had a dedicated white wine room. Pardon me, white wine room. So it really was something like I want to have a white wine room that's that's dedicated, and we can keep all the wine at the right temperature. So we grabbed that, and then I found another room that used to be the liquor room, and it was really high ceilings. I'm like, and we converted that into the red wine cellar. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely like we have refrigerators, and we keep two bottles, right? right. And then you have like you, you grab one from the cellar, and then you put it behind the other right. bottle. And so exactly. hopefully, if you know by the time <laughs> that second one, it's it's cold enough. Yeah. Right? No, that we we've everything. Yeah. Rebel is like pimped out with like you know all the everything, all the red, every bottle of red wine, even the wine by the glass is all served at fifty like fifty eight degrees. All the white wines are served, you know, probably colder than most than, than they should be, but it's better too cold than not, than not cold enough. And at Pearl and Ash, you know, we work out of a red wine cellar and then we have some refrigerators. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's tight. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And, and I couldn't do it without with my very dedicated staff. Like, I definitely showed, gave them the blueprint of how it worked, but they executed. They must have moved that cellar at Pearl and Ash six or seven times because there were issues with us having to move it because of this or that. And, and you know, as time went on and the cellar accumulated, it's almost 10,000 bottles worth of wine in that cellar there. So it's a lot of wine to move around, but uh, it's been set for the last few years and it's, it's impressive and as someone who like deals with wine inventories frequently and those logistics uh, it is extra impressive to know <laughs> what uh, to know yeah. what you're going through have you I, I wanted to ask you this a little bit earlier have you noticed a big change uh since the michelin star have you noticed more tourists and travelers and europeans because that's what i would imagine what would happen 
100 percent. Yeah. yeah that's it's definitely you know you see people come in with a michelin guide in their hand and that was always the experience we had at guilt it's just it it, it puts you it connects you with people that wouldn't otherwise not you know these aren't people that read the new york times about or, 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 or new york magazine when they're going to go out to eat in, in new york they're looking at the michelin guide because it's like a guide that they're familiar with in europe this is something that they use when they're going to go anywhere for any restaurants so it really does link you to an international clientele that maybe wouldn't be as savvy um about where to eat or drink in in new york so it's a it's an amazing thing and it's definitely increased you know um the business and i would say also the the type of clientele that we're that we're working with now you know europeans um tend to really have a different uh, way of dining and a different appreciation for food and wine. Can Not you, better, can you characterize that, that difference? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's always amazing to, to, to think most Europeans drink only wines from their country. So it's, it's the one thing that's hard is that we get, you know, there's a lot of people that come from Spain because people from Spain love the Michelin Guide, but at Rebel, we only have a U.S. and, and French wine list. And so when they come in, they want to drink Spanish wine, which I think is so amazing that they're so patriotic that even when they're in another country, they want to drink, you know, like... Like that's Spanish amazing, wine. but it's a pretty typical thing for most for most Spaniards and even, even the French. You know, what I mean, they, they'll like like you French people come in. They don't then they they're never going to drink California wine or not never, but it's 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 rare. You know what I mean? The, the majority of clientele that come from those countries tend to stick to their own their own wines because it's yeah. what they know, which I understand they're comfortable with. Um, and that that's one that's one thing definitely. And I think their appreciation for you know like the the quality of the food i don't know like the comments that they make you can tell that they really they're the people that are that are well eaten you know what i mean they 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 dine at a lot of great restaurants and often they'll they'll compare us to other michelin star restaurants that they've been to and it's an honor to hear that you know because not everybody gets to experience all the great michelin stars of europe and yeah it's cool uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like if I were to go to another country, I would pretty much only want to drink the wines of that country unless right. like they have something that's like super allocated, you know, like some French wine that we can't buy here. Right. Like, oh, shit, like I'll buy that. <laughs> on the- <clears throat> but I, I, I think it's so interesting when we see Europeans come here and uh, <clears throat> and they're like, wow, that is a wine of my country that we can't get because we only have like the local wines, especially winemakers say that like if you if you live in a wine wine region you're pretty much only drinking the wines of that region. You might have like one guy who has a wine bar in town that has some international wines. Right. So that's probably also pretty exciting for them to see just like the breadth of, of uh, French wines you have there yeah. all over the place. No, no, it's often the case. So like, man, I can't, I can't even drink this much, you know, different wine from this producer in, in, and I'm from right outside of Burgundy. So yeah, that, 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 that occurs a lot of people. There's, it was an excitement. That's cool. That. So tell us what's going on at Pearl Nash. You have a new chef. We do. Yeah. Trey Bissor is the chef now. Um, Trey comes to us from Calicchio and Sons. He was working for many years there. Um, alongside Ryan Millsnap, so uh, who did a lot of wine events. So Trey really had a, a has a great um, understanding for wine and food and how those play well together. Um, you know, it was when we were we were looking to to bring a new chef on. Um, we wanted to try and find somebody that had that understanding. I think that was kind of always the thing that Pearl and Ash maybe was was a little difficult for people because you know Richard's food is so polarizing and the wine list is also so polarizing. But I don't think they always always matched up and you know it was kind of that thing where this experience of pearl and ash came about almost haphazardly like i was a consultant originally and you know it just kind of all all rolled rolled as it as it went and we maybe the concept when we opened at pearl and ash was not that it was going to be an epically huge wine list and food that works alongside of it 
So um, when, when we had the opportunity to find a new chef to, to come into the role, we really wanted to try and find somebody that had that understanding. And Trey's changed the menu. I mean, I think it's the, the menu is way more influenced by European um, cuisine. There's a lot more Spanish-influenced food, um, Italian-influenced food, French-influenced food, but definitely has a new American feel to it. It's not any one of those four things, but it's kind of all four of those things together. And, um, you know, the flavor profiles are really wine-friendly. I mean, we, we work on that a lot as we've done the wine dinners together, too. He's just a really exciting young guy to work with and i think it's it's cool to to see the change that's happened so if you haven't been back in in the last year or two you should come back and check it out definitely definitely and uh, i have always loved colicchio and sons it was a place that i brought like my wine team to because of the quality of their wine service but also the the food and how wine friendly it is that's that's exciting to to see um i love your wine dinners i sometimes i just I, I, you know, I'm on your mailing list. It's one of the few mailing lists I haven't unsubscribed from <laughs> because it's so just always exciting to see what you have going on and the 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 way you really dive deep into uh, understanding specific wines in this really just like fun format. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you have coming up next in terms of your wine dinners? Um, well, we, I mean, we, those those dinners are always kind of um, coming up as they come up. We, okay. we, 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 we there's we've announced the last two, um, uh, which is uh, the one that's coming up next is Anjou. So kind of a weird little village in the Loire Valley where they make great Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc. Um, we're announcing another one in a week from two, oh, no, in that, not in this next Tuesday, but I never, I never want to give too much of a heads okay. up as to, as to what, what they are because the, 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 those dinners sell out they like sell in a matter quickly. of, yeah, a matter of minutes. We're also doing winemaker dinners now at Rebel where, um, we're actually having, it's a little, you know, the Renegade Wine Dinners is always the idea was it was about fun and food and wine and it was not to be taken too seriously. We basically do those dinners at cost and there's no big presentation. It's just like you getting the opportunity to experience the wines and kind of make formulate your own opinion. Obviously, the, the staff that's there, uh, my sommeliers understand the wines and can answer any questions, but there's no big formal presentation. So when we decided the idea of doing wine dinners at Rebel, we wanted to do something that was a little bit more graduated in approach. So my I thought was, why don't we just do exclusively winemaker dinners, almost in the same spirit of the Palais, where you have the winemaker in the room and they're speaking about the wine. So the dinners that we do at um, Rebel in the winemaker series, that's always the case. So we've done ones with Pax Male um, from Sonoma Coast. We've done uh, Gideon Beanstalk from Closeron. Um, uh, Jean Bordy, a great Jura producer with some wines back to the 40s for that dinner. Uh, this Sunday, we have um, a dinner with uh, Marcel Lapierre and um, uh, Jean Foyard, two of the best producers in Beaujolais, and they'll be they'll be here for the event, which is pretty awesome. And we're when is that? That's Sunday. Sunday <laughs> That's night. Like, is yeah. that sold out already? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's sold out. <laughs> there may be a ticket or two left, but I, I think I, I'm pretty sure we sold that out pretty quickly. Yeah, obviously that's a pretty exciting one. So, but there'll be more of those coming up, and, and we're, you know we're looking at doing some produce, some producers in Burgundy and and. Um, other areas there, there's there's a lot a lot of stuff a lot of stuff on the in the Rhone there's a producer from the Rhone that we're pretty excited about that might be doing it but oh, that's awesome I mean you guys should definitely look out for that um, I I think that is all the time we have it's always just such a pleasure to have you Patrick when you have uh, more cool stuff uh, going on which I, I have no doubt you you will you always seem to be doing something exciting uh, you're always welcome on the show thank Thanks, you so Joe. much for thank you for having me. Uh, and, and for those of you listening, thank you so much. If you happen to be in San Francisco or you are listening from San Francisco, I encourage you, uh, to, to pony up for the, for the grand tasting. That's going to be just a great event. Uh, you'll see me there. You'll see a bunch of, uh, winemakers and sommeliers there. It's going to be awesome. Looking forward to La Palais and go, don't forget to check out, uh, Rebel and Pearl and Ash to awesome restaurants in New York Lower East Side. All right. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to everyone at Heritage Radio Network. This has been In the Drink. See you next week.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.